Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Chapter 5 of Round the Moon. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. Round the Moon by Jules Verne. Chapter 5 The Cold of Space. This revelation came like a thunderbolt. Who could have expected such an error in calculation? Barbicane would not believe it. Nickel revised his figures. They were exact. As to the formula which had determined them, they could not suspect its truth. It was evident that an initiatory velocity of 17,000 yards in the first second was necessary to enable them to reach the neutral point. The three friends looked at each other silently. There was no thought of breakfast. Barbicane, with clenched teeth, knitted brows, and hands clasped convulsively, was watching through the window. Nickel had crossed his arms, and was examining his calculations. Michel Ardan was muttering, "'That is just like those scientific men. They never do anything else.' I would give twenty pistoles if we could fall upon the Cambridge Observatory and crush it, together with the whole lot of dabblers and figures which it contains. Suddenly a thought struck the captain, which he at once communicated to Barbicane. Ah, said he, it is seven o'clock in the morning. We have already been gone thirty-two hours. More than half our passage is over, and we are not falling that I am aware of. Barbicane did not answer, but after a rapid glance at the captain, took a pair of compasses wherewith to measure the angular distance of the terrestrial globe. Then, from the lower window he took an exact observation, and noticed that the projectile was apparently stationary. Then, rising and wiping his forehead, on which large drops of perspiration were standing, he put some figures on paper. Nicol understood that the President was deducting from the terrestrial diameter the projectile's distance from the earth. He watched him anxiously. "'No,' exclaimed Barbicane, after some moments, "'no, we are not falling. No, we are already more than fifty thousand leagues from the earth. We have passed the point at which the projectile would have stopped if its speed had only been twelve thousand yards at starting. We are still going up.' "'That is evident,' replied Nicol, "'and we must conclude that our initial speed, under the power of the four hundred thousand pounds of gun-cotton, must have exceeded the required twelve thousand yards. Now I can understand how, after thirteen minutes only, we met the second satellite, which gravitates round the earth at more than two thousand leagues' distance.' "'And this explanation is the more probable,' added Barbicane, because, in throwing off the water enclosed between its partition breaks, the projectile found itself lightened of a considerable weight. "'Just so,' said Nicol. 
Ah, my brave Nickel, we are saved. Ah, very well, then, said Michel Ardin quietly. As we are safe, let us have breakfast. Nickel was not mistaken. The initial speed had been, very fortunately, much above that estimated by the Cambridge Observatory, but the Cambridge Observatory had nevertheless made a mistake. The travellers, recovered from this false alarm, breakfasted merrily. If they ate a great deal, they talked more. Their confidence was greater after than before the incident of the algebra. "'Why should we not succeed?' said Michel Ardin. "'Why should we not arrive safely? We are launched.' We have no obstacle before us, no stones in our way. The road is open, more so than that of a ship battling with the sea, more open than that of a balloon battling with the wind. And if a ship can reach its destination, a balloon go where it pleases, why cannot our projectile attain its end and aim? It will attain it, said Barbicane. If only to do honor to the Americans— added Michel Ardin, the only people who could bring such an enterprise to a happy termination, and the only one which could produce a President Barbicane. Ah, now we are no longer uneasy. I begin to think, what will become of us? We shall get right royally weary. Barbicane and Nicol made a gesture of denial. But I have provided for the contingency, my friends, replied Michel. You have only to speak, and I have chess, draughts, cards, and dominoes at your disposal. Nothing is wanting but a billiard-table. What? exclaimed Barbicane. You brought away such trifles? Certainly, replied Michel, and not only to distract ourselves, but also with the laudable intention of endowing the selenite smoking divans with them. My friend, said Barbicane, if the moon is inhabited, its inhabitants must have appeared some thousands of years before those of the earth, for we cannot doubt that their star is much older than ours. If, then, these selenites have existed there hundreds of thousands of years, and if their brain is of the same organization as the human brain, they have already invented all that we have invented, and even what we may invent in future ages." They have nothing to learn from us, and we have everything to learn from them. What? said Michel. You believe that they have artists like Phidias, Michelangelo, or Raphael? Yes. Poets like Homer, Virgil, Milton, Lamartine, and Hugo? I am sure of it. Philosophers like Plato, Aristotle, Descartes, Kant? I have no doubt of it. Scientific men like Archimedes, Euclid, Pascal, Newton? I could swear it. Comic writers like Arnal, and photographers like, like Nadar? Certain. Then, friend Barbicane, if they are as strong as we are, and even stronger, these Selenites, why have they not tried to communicate with the earth? Why have they not launched a lunar projectile to our terrestrial regions? "'Who told you that they have never done so?' said Barbicane seriously. "'Indeed,' added Nicol, "'it would be easier for them than for us, for two reasons. First, because the attraction on the moon's surface is six times less than that on the earth, which would allow a projectile to rise more easily. 
secondly because it would be enough to send such a projectile only at eight thousand leagues instead of eighty thousand which would require the force of projection to be ten times less strong then continued michel i repeat it why have they not done it and i repeat said barbicane who told you that they have not done it when thousands of years before man appeared on earth and the projectile where is the projectile i demand to see the projectile my friend replied barbicane the sea covers five-sixths of our globe from that we may draw five good reasons for supposing that the lunar projectile if ever launched is now at the bottom of the atlantic or the pacific unless it sped into some crevasse at that period when the crust of the earth was not yet hardened hold barbicane said michel you have an answer for everything and i bow before your wisdom but there is one hypothesis that would suit me better than all the others which is that the selenites being older than we are wiser and have not invented gunpowder at this moment diana joined in the conversation by a sonorous barking she was asking for her breakfast ah said michel ardin in our discussion we have forgotten diana and satellite immediately a good-sized pie was given to the dog which devoured it hungrily do you see barbicane said michel we should have made a second noah's ark of this projectile and borne with us to the moon a couple of every kind of domestic animal i dare say but room would have failed us oh said michel we might have squeezed a little the fact is replied nicholl that cows bulls and horses and all ruminants would have been very useful on the lunar continent but unfortunately the car could neither have been made a stable nor a shed well we might at least have brought a donkey only a little donkey that courageous beast which old selenus loved to mount i love those old donkeys they are the least favoured animals in creation they are not only beaten when alive but even after they are dead how do you make that out asked barbicane why said michel they make their skins into drums barbicane and nicholl could not help laughing at this ridiculous remark but a cry from their merry companion stopped them the latter was leaning over the spot where satellite lay he rose saying my good satellite is no longer ill ah said nicholl no answered michel he is dead there added he in a piteous tone that is embarrassing i much fear my poor diana that you will leave no progeny in the lunar regions indeed the unfortunate satellite had not survived its wound it was quite dead michel ardan looked at his friends with a rueful countenance one question presents itself said barbicane we cannot keep the dead body of this dog with us for the next forty-eight hours no certainly not replied nicholl but our scuttles are fixed on hinges they can be let down we will open one and throw the body out into space the president thought for some moments and then said yes we must do so but at the same time taking very great precautions why asked michel 
for two reasons which you will understand answered barbicane the first relates to the air shut up in the projectile and of which we must lose as little as possible but we manufacture the air only in part we make only the oxygen my worthy michel and with regard to that we must watch that the apparatus does not furnish the oxygen in too great a quantity for an excess would bring us very serious physiological troubles but if we make the oxygen we do not make the azote that medium which the lungs do not absorb and which ought to remain intact and that azote will escape rapidly through the open scuttles oh the time for throwing out poor satellite said michel agreed but we must act quickly and the second reason asked michel the second reason is that we must not let the outer cold which is excessive penetrate the projectile or we shall be frozen to death but the sun the sun warms our projectile which absorbs its rays but it does not warm the vacuum in which we are floating at this moment where there is no air there is no more heat than diffused light and the same with darkness it is cold where the sun's rays do not strike direct this temperature is only the temperature produced by the radiation of the stars that is to say what the terrestrial globe would undergo if the sun disappeared one day which is not to be feared replied nicol who knows said michel ardin but in admitting that the sun does not go out might it not happen that the earth might move away from it there said barbicane there is michel with his ideas and continued michel do we not know that in eighteen sixty one the earth passed through the tail of a comet or let us suppose a comet whose power of attraction is greater than that of the sun the terrestrial orbit will bend towards the wandering star and the earth becoming its satellite will be drawn such a distance that the rays of the sun will have no action on its surface that might happen indeed replied barbicane but the consequences of such a displacement need not be so formidable as you suppose and why not because the heat and the cold would be equalized on our globe it has been calculated that had our earth been carried along in its course by the comet of 1861 at its perihelion that is its nearest approach to the sun it would have undergone a heat twenty-eight thousand times greater than that of summer but this heat which is sufficient to evaporate the waters would have formed a thick ring of cloud which would have modified that excessive temperature hence the compensation between the cold of the aphelion and the heat of the perihelion at how many degrees asked nicol is the temperature of the planetary spaces estimated formerly replied barbicane it was greatly exaggerated but now after the calculations of fourier of the french academy of science it is not supposed to exceed sixty centigrade below zero pooh said michel that's nothing it is very much replied barbicane the temperature which was observed in the polar regions at melville island and fort reliance that is seventy-six fahrenheit below zero if i mistake not said nicol monsieur poulier 
another savant estimates the temperature of space at 250 degrees fahrenheit below zero we shall however be able to verify these calculations for ourselves not at present because the solar rays beating directly upon our thermometer would give on the contrary a very high temperature but when we arrive in the moon during its fifteen days of night at either face we shall have leisure to make the experiment for our satellite lies in a vacuum what do you mean by a vacuum asked michel is it perfectly such it is absolutely void of air and is the air replaced by nothing whatever by the ether only replied barbicane and pray what is the ether the ether my friend is an agglomeration of imponderable atoms which relatively to their dimensions are as far removed from each other as the celestial bodies are in space it is these atoms which by their vibratory motion produce both light and heat in the universe they now proceeded to the burial of satellite they had merely to drop him into space in the same way that sailors drop a body into the sea but as president barbicane suggested they must act quickly so as to lose as little as possible of that air whose elasticity would rapidly have spread it into space the bolts of the right scuttle the opening of which measured about twelve inches across were carefully drawn whilst michel quite grieved prepared to launch his dog into space the glass raised by a powerful lever which enabled it to overcome the pressure of the inside air on the walls of the projectile turned rapidly on its hinges and satellite was thrown out scarcely a particle of air could have escaped and the operation was so successful that later on barbicane did not fear to dispose of the rubbish which encumbered the car end of chapter chapter 6 of round the moon this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org this recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. Round the Moon by Jules Verne Chapter 6 Question and Answer On the 4th of December, when the travellers awoke after fifty-four hours' journey, the chronometer marked five o'clock of the terrestrial morning. In time it was just over five hours and forty minutes, half of that assigned to their sojourn in the projectile, but they had already accomplished nearly seven-tenths of the way. This peculiarity was due to their regularly decreasing speed. Now when they observed the earth through the lower window, it looked like nothing more than a dark spot drowned in the solar rays. No more crescent, no more cloudy light. The next day, at midnight, the earth would be new, at the very moment when the moon would be full. Above, the orb of night was nearing the line followed by the projectile so as to meet it at the given hour. All around the black vault was studded with brilliant points, which seemed to move slowly, but at the great distance they were from them, their relative size did not seem to change. The sun and stars appeared exactly as they do to us upon earth. As to the moon, she was considerably larger, 
but the travellers' glasses, not very powerful, did not allow them as yet to make any useful observations upon her surface, or reconnoitre her topographically or geologically. Thus the time passed in never-ending conversations all about the moon. Each one brought forward his own contingent of particular facts. Barbicane and Nicholl, always serious, Michel Ardin, always enthusiastic. The projectile, its situation, its direction, incidents which might happen, the precautions necessitated by their fall onto the moon, were inexhaustible matters of conjecture. As they were breakfasting, a question of Michel's, relating to the projectile, provoked rather a curious answer from Barbicane, which is worth repeating. Michel, supposing it to be roughly stopped while still under its formidable initial speed, wanted to know what the consequences of the stoppage would have been. But, said Barbicane, I do not see how it could have been stopped. But let us suppose so, said Michel. It is an impossible supposition, said the practical Barbicane, unless the impulsive force had failed. But even then its speed would diminish by degrees, and it would not have stopped suddenly. Admit that it had struck a body in space. What body? Why, that enormous meteor which we met. Then, said Nicholl, the projectile would have been broken into a thousand pieces, and we with it. More than that, replied Barbicane, we should have been burnt to death. Burnt! exclaimed Michel. By Jove, I am sorry it did not happen, just to see. And you would have seen, replied Barbicane. It is known now that heat is only a modification of motion. When water is warmed, that is to say, when heat is added to it, its particles are set in motion. Well, said Michel, that is an ingenious theory. And a true one, my worthy friend, for it explains every phenomenon of caloric. Heat is but the motion of atoms, a simple oscillation of the particles of a body. When they apply the brake to a train, the train comes to a stop. But what becomes of the motion which it had previously possessed? It is transformed into heat, and the brake becomes hot. Why do they grease the axles of the wheels? To prevent their heating, because this heat would be generated by the motion which is thus lost by transformation. Yes, I understand, replied Michel, perfectly. For example, when I have run a long time, when I am swimming, when I am perspiring in large drops, why am I obliged to stop? Simply because my motion is changed into heat. Barbicane could not help smiling at Michel's reply, then, returning to his theory, said, Thus, in case of a shock, it would have been with our projectile as with a ball which falls in a burning state, after having struck the metal plate. It is its motion which is turned into heat. Consequently, I affirm that, if our projectile had struck the meteor, its speed thus suddenly checked would have raised a heat great enough to turn it into vapor instantaneously. Then, asked Nicholl, what would happen if the Earth's motion were to stop suddenly? Her temperature would be raised to such a pitch, said Barbicane, that she would be at once reduced to vapor. Well, said Michel, that is a way of ending the earth which will greatly simplify things. And if the earth fell upon the sun? asked Nicholl. According to calculation, replied Barbicane, 
the fall would develop a heat equal to that produced by sixteen thousand globes of coal each equal in bulk to our own terrestrial globe good additional heat for the sun replied michel ardin of which the inhabitants of uranus or neptune would doubtless not complain they must be perished with cold on their planets thus my friends said barbicane all motion suddenly stopped produces heat and this theory allows us to infer that the heat of the solar disk is fed by a hail of meteors falling incessantly on its surface they have even calculated oh dear murmured michel the figures are coming they have even calculated continued the imperturbable barbicane that the shock of each meteor on the sun ought to produce a heat equal to that of four thousand masses of coal of an equal bulk and what is the solar heat asked michel it is equal to that produced by the combustion of a stratum of coal surrounding the sun to a depth of forty-seven miles and that heat would be able to boil two billions nine hundred millions of cubic myriameters of water now a myriameter is equal to rather more than ten thousand nine hundred thirty-six cubic yards english and it does not roast us exclaimed michel no replied barbicane because the terrestrial atmosphere absorbs four-tenths of the solar heat besides the quantity of heat intercepted by the earth is but a billionth part of the entire radiation i see that is all for the best said michel and that this atmosphere is a useful invention for it not only allows us to breathe but it prevents us from roasting yes said nicholl unfortunately it will not be the same in the moon bah said michel always hopeful if there are inhabitants they must breathe if there are no longer any they must have left enough oxygen for three people if only at the bottom of ravines where its own weight would cause it to accumulate and we will not climb the mountains that is all and michel rising went to look at the lunar disk which shone with intolerable brilliancy by jove said he it must be hot up there without considering replied nicholl that the day lasts three hundred sixty hours and to compensate that said barbicane the nights have the same length and as heat is restored by radiation their temperature can only be that of the planetary space a pretty country that exclaimed michel never mind i wish i was there ah my dear comrades it will be rather curious to have the earth for our moon to see it rise on the horizon to recognize the shape of its continents and to say to oneself there is america there is europe then to follow it when it is about to lose itself in the sun's rays by the by barbicane have the selenites eclipses yes eclipses of the sun replied barbicane when the centers of the three orbs are on a line the earth being in the middle but they are only partial during which the earth cast like a screen upon the solar disk allows the greater portion to be seen and why asked nicholl is there no total eclipse does not the cone of the shadow cast by the earth extend beyond the moon yes if we do not take into consideration the refraction produced by the terrestrial atmosphere 
No, if we take that refraction into consideration. Thus, delta be the horizontal parallel, and p the apparent semi-diameter. Oh, said Michel, do speak plainly, you man of algebra. <laughs> Very well, replied Barbicane. In popular language, the mean distance from the moon to the earth being sixty terrestrial radii, the length of the cone of the shadow, on account of the refraction, is reduced to less than forty-two radii. The result is that when there are eclipses, the moon finds itself beyond the cone of pure shadow, and that the sun sends her its rays not only from its edges, but also from its centre. Then, said Michel, in a merry tone, why are there eclipses when there ought not to be any? Simply because the solar rays are weakened by this refraction, and the atmosphere through which they pass extinguishes the greater part of them. That reason satisfies me, replied Michel. Besides, we shall see when we get there. Now, tell me, Barbicane, do you believe that the moon is an old comet? There's an idea. Yes, said Michel, with an amiable swagger. I have a few ideas of that sort. But that idea does not spring from Michel, answered Nicholl. Well, then, I am a plagiarist. No doubt about it. According to the ancients, the Arcadians pretend that their ancestors inhabited the earth before the moon became her satellite. Starting from this fact, some scientific men have seen in the moon a comet whose orbit will one day bring it so near to the earth that it will be held there by its attraction. "'Is there any truth in this hypothesis?' asked Michel. "'None whatever,' said Barbicane. "'And the proof is that the moon has preserved no trace of the gaseous envelope which always accompanies comets.' "'But,' continued Nicholl, "'before becoming the Earth's satellite, could not the moon, when in her perihelion, pass so near the sun as by evaporation to get rid of all those gaseous substances?' It is possible, friend Nicol, but not probable. Why not? Because, faith, I do not know. Ah! exclaimed Michel, what hundreds of volumes we might make of all that we do not know. Ah, indeed. What time is it? asked Barbicane. Three o'clock, answered Nicol. How time goes, said Michel, in the conversation of scientific men such as we are. Certainly, I feel I know too much. I feel that I am becoming a well. Saying which, Michel hoisted himself to the roof of the projectile to observe the moon better, he pretended. During this time his companions were watching through the lower glass. Nothing new to note. When Michel Ardin came down, he went to the side scuttle, and suddenly they heard an exclamation of surprise. What is it? asked Barbicane. The president approached the window and saw a sort of flattened sack floating some yards from the projectile. This object seemed as motionless as the projectile, and was consequently animated with the same ascending movement. "'What is that machine?' continued Michel Ardin. "'Is it one of the bodies of space which our projectile keeps within its attraction, and which will accompany it to the moon?' "'What astonishes me,' said Nicholl is that the specific weight of the body, which is certainly less than that of the projectile, allows it to keep so perfectly on a level with it. Nicol, replied Barbicane, after a moment's reflection, 
I do not know what the object is, but I know why it maintains our level. And why? Because we are floating in space, my dear captain, and in space bodies fall or move, which is the same thing, with equal speed whatever be their weight or form. It is the air, which by its resistance creates these differences in weight. When you create a vacuum in a tube, the objects you send through it, grains of dust or grains of lead, fall with the same rapidity. Here in space is the same cause and the same effect. Just so, said Nicholl, and everything we throw out of the projectile will accompany it until it reaches the moon. Ah, fools that we are! exclaimed Michel. Why that expletive? asked Barbicane. Because we might have filled the projectile with useful objects, books, instruments, tools, etc. We could have thrown them all out and all would have followed in our train. But happy thought, why cannot we walk outside like the meteor? Why cannot we launch into space through the scuttle? What enjoyment it would be to feel oneself thus suspended in ether, more favoured than the birds who must use their wings to keep themselves up. Granted, said Barbicane, but how to breathe? Hang the air to fail so inopportunely. But if it did not fail, Michel, your density being less than that of the projectile, you would soon be left behind. Then we must remain in our car? We must. Ah! exclaimed Michel in a loud voice. What is the matter? asked Nicholl. I know, I guess, what this pretended meteor is. It is no asteroid which is accompanying us. It is not a piece of a planet. What is it, then? asked Barbicane. It is our unfortunate dog. It is Diana's husband. Indeed, this deformed, unrecognizable object, reduced to nothing, was the body of satellite, flattened like a bagpipe without wind, and ever mounting, mounting. End of chapter. Chapter 7 of Round the Moon. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. Round the Moon by Jules Verne. Chapter 7 A Moment of Intoxication. Thus a phenomenon, curious but explicable, was happening under these strange conditions. Every object thrown from the projectile would follow the same course and never stop until it did. There was a subject for conversation which the whole evening could not exhaust. Besides, the excitement of the three travellers increased as they drew near the end of their journey. They expected unforeseen incidents and new phenomena and nothing would have astonished them in the frame of mind they then were in. Their overexcited imagination went faster than the projectile, whose speed was evidently diminishing, though insensibly to themselves. But the moon grew larger to their eyes, and they fancied, if they stretched out their hands, they could seize it. The next day, the 5th of November, at five in the morning, all three were on foot. That day was to be the last of their journey, if all calculations were true. That very night, at twelve o'clock, 
in eighteen hours, exactly at the full moon, they would reach its brilliant disk. The next midnight would see that journey ended, the most extraordinary of ancient or modern times. Thus, from the first of the morning, through the scuttles silvered by its rays, they saluted the orb of night with a confident and joyous hurrah. The moon was advancing majestically along the starry firmament. A few more degrees, and she would reach the exact point where her meeting with the projectile was to take place. According to his own observations, Barbicane reckoned that they would land on her northern hemisphere, where stretch immense plains, and where mountains are rare. A favorable circumstance if, as they thought, the lunar atmosphere was stored only in its depths. Besides, observed Michel Ardin, a plain is easier to disembark upon than a mountain. A selenite, deposited in Europe on the summit of Mont Blanc, or in Asia on the top of the Himalayas, would not be quite in the right place. And, added Captain Nicholl, on a flat ground, the projectile will remain motionless when it has once touched, whereas on a declivity it would roll like an avalanche, and not being squirrels we should not come out safe and sound. So it is all for the best. Indeed, the success of the audacious attempt no longer appeared doubtful, but Barbicane was preoccupied with one thought. But not wishing to make his companions uneasy, he kept silence on the subject. The direction the projectile was taking towards the moon's northern hemisphere showed that her course had been slightly altered. The discharge, mathematically calculated, would carry the projectile to the very center of the lunar disk. If it did not land there, there must have been some deviation. What had caused it? Barbicane could neither imagine nor determine the importance of the deviation, for there were no points to go by. He hoped, however, that it would have no other result than of bringing them nearer the upper border of the moon, a region more suitable for landing. Without imparting his uneasiness to his companions, Barbicane contented himself with constantly observing the moon, in order to see whether the course of the projectile would not be altered, for the situation would have been terrible if it failed in its aim, and being carried beyond the disk should be launched into interplanetary space. At that moment, the moon, instead of appearing flat like a disk, showed its convexity. If the sun's rays had struck it obliquely, the shadow thrown would have brought out the high mountains, which would have been clearly detached. The eye might have gazed into the crater's gaping abysses, and followed the capricious fissures which wound through the immense plains. But all relief was as yet leveled in intense brilliancy. They could scarcely distinguish those large spots which give to the moon the appearance of a human face. "'Face, indeed!' said Michel Ardin. "'But I am sorry for the amiable sister of Apollo. A very pitted face!' But the travellers, now so near the end, were incessantly observing this new world. They imagined themselves walking through its unknown countries, climbing its highest peaks, descending into its lowest depths. Here and there they fancied they saw vast seas, scarcely kept together under so rarefied an atmosphere, and watercourses emptying the mountain tributaries. Leaning over the abyss, 
they hoped to catch some sounds from that orb for ever mute in the solitude of space. That last day left them. They took down the most trifling details. A vague uneasiness took possession of them as they neared the end. This uneasiness would have been doubled had they felt how their speed had decreased. It would have seemed to them quite insufficient to carry them to the end. It was because the projectile then weighed almost nothing. Its weight was ever decreasing, and would be entirely annihilated on that line where the lunar and terrestrial attractions would neutralize each other. But in spite of his preoccupation, Michel Ardan did not forget to prepare the morning repast with his accustomed punctuality. They ate with a good appetite. Nothing was so excellent as the soup liquefied by the heat of the gas, nothing better than the preserved meat. Some glasses of good French wine crowned the repast, causing Michel Ardan to remark that the lunar vines, warmed by that ardent sun, ought to distill even more generous wines, that is, if they existed. In any case, the far-seeing Frenchman had taken care not to forget in his collection some precious cuttings of the Médoc and Côte d'Or, upon which he founded his hopes. Ricet and Reynaud's apparatus worked with great regularity. Not an atom of carbonic acid resisted the potash, and as to the oxygen, Captain Nichols said, it was of the first quality. The little watery vapor enclosed in the projectile, mixing with the air, tempered the dryness, and many apartments in London, Paris, or New York, and many theatres, were certainly not in such a healthy condition. But that it might act with regularity, the apparatus must be kept in perfect order. So each morning Michel visited the escape regulators, tried the taps, and regulated the heat of the gas by the parometer. Everything had gone well up to that time, and the travellers, imitating the worthy Joseph T. Maston, began to acquire a degree of en bon point, which would have rendered them unrecognisable if their imprisonment had been prolonged to some months. In a word, they behaved like chickens in a coop. They were getting fat. In looking through the scuttle, Barbicane saw the spectre of the dog and other divers' objects which had been thrown from the projectile obstinately following them. Diana howled lugubriously on seeing the remains of satellite, which seemed as motionless as if they reposed on the solid earth. "'Do you know, my friends,' said Michel Ardan, "'that if one of us had succumbed to the shock consequent on departure, we should have had a great deal of trouble to bury him. What am I saying? To etherize him!' as here ether takes the place of earth. You see, the accusing body would have followed us into space like a remorse. That would have been sad, said Nicol. Ah, continued Michel, what I regret is not being able to take a walk outside. What voluptuousness to float amid this radiant ether, to bathe oneself in it, to wrap oneself in the sun's pure rays, if Barbicane had only thought of furnishing us with a diving apparatus and an air-pump, I could have ventured out and assumed fanciful attitudes of feigned monsters on the top of the projectile. "'Well, old Michel,' replied Barbicane, "'you would not have made a feigned monster long, for in spite of your diver's dress, swollen by the expansion of air within you, you would have burst like a shell, or rather like a balloon which has risen too high.' 
So do not regret it, and do not forget this. As long as we float in space, all sentimental walks beyond the projectile are forbidden. Michel Ardin allowed himself to be convinced to a certain extent. He admitted that the thing was difficult, but not impossible, a word which he never uttered. The conversation passed from this subject to another, not failing for an instant. It seemed to the three friends as though, under present conditions, ideas shot up in their brains as leaves shoot at the first warmth of spring. They felt bewildered. In the middle of the questions and answers which crossed each other, Nicol put one question which did not find an immediate solution. "'Ah, indeed,' said he. "'It is all very well to go to the moon, but how to get back again?' His two interlocutors looked surprised. One would have thought that this possibility now occurred to them for the first time. "'What do you mean by that, Nicol?' asked Barbicane gravely. "'To ask for means to leave a country,' added Michel, "'when we have not yet arrived there, seems to me rather inopportune.' "'I do not say that, wishing to draw back,' replied Nicol. "'But I repeat my question, and I ask, how shall we return?' "'I know nothing about it,' answered Barbicane. "'And I,' said Michel, "'if I had known how to return, I would never have started.' "'There's an answer,' cried Nicol. "'I quite approve of Michel's words,' said Barbicane and add that the question has no real interest. Later, when we think it advisable to return, we will take counsel together. If the Columbiad is not there, the projectile will be. That is a step, certainly. A ball without a gun. The gun, replied Barbicane, can be manufactured. The powder can be made. Neither metals, saltpeter, nor coal can fail in the depths of the moon, and we need only go eight thousand leagues in order to fall upon the terrestrial globe by virtue of the mere laws of weight. "'Enough,' said Michel, with animation. "'Let it be no longer a question of returning. We have already entertained it too long. As to communicating with our former earthly colleagues, that will not be difficult.' "'And how?' "'By means of meteors launched by lunar volcanoes.' "'Well thought of, Michel.' said Barbicane, in a convinced tone of voice, Laplace has calculated that a force five times greater than that of our gun would suffice to send a meteor from the moon to the earth, and there is not one volcano which has not a greater power of propulsion than that. Hurrah! exclaimed Michel. These meteors are handy postmen, and cost nothing. And how we shall be able to laugh at the post office administration! But now I think of it— what do you think of? A capital idea. Why did we not fasten a thread to our projectile, and we could have exchanged telegrams with the earth? <laughs> the deuce, answered Nicol. Do you consider the weight of a thread 250,000 miles long nothing? As nothing. They could have trebled the Columbiad's charge. They could have quadrupled or quintupled it exclaimed Michel, with whom the verb took a higher intonation each time. "'There is but one little objection to make to your proposition,' replied Barbicane, "'which is that, during the rotary motion of the globe, 
our thread would have wound itself round it like a chain on a capstan, and that it would inevitably have brought us to the ground. "'By the thirty-nine stars of the Union,' said Michel, "'I have nothing but impracticable ideas to-day, ideas worthy of J. T. Maston. But I have a notion that, if we do not return to earth, J. T. Maston will be able to come to us.' "'Yes, he'll come,' replied Barbicane. "'He is a worthy and a courageous comrade. Besides, what is easier? Is not the Columbiad still buried in the soil of Florida?' Is cotton and nitric acid wanted wherewith to manufacture the peroxyl? Will not the moon again pass to the zenith of Florida? In eighteen years' time will she not occupy exactly the same place as today? Yes, continued Michel. Yes, Manston will come. And with him are friends Elphinstone, Blomsbury, all the members of the gun club, and they will be well received and by and by they will run trains of projectiles between the earth and the moon. Hurrah for J. T. Maston! It is probable that, if the Honourable J. T. Maston did not hear the hurrahs uttered in his honour, his ears at least tingled. What was he doing, then? Doubtless posted in the Rocky Mountains, at the station of Long's Peak, he was trying to find the invisible projectile gravitating in space. If he was thinking of his dear companions, we must allow that they were not far behind him, and that, under the influence of a strange excitement, they were devoting to him their best thoughts. But whence this excitement, which was evidently growing upon the tenets of the projectile? Their sobriety could not be doubted. This strange irritation of the brain, must it be attributed to the peculiar circumstances under which they found themselves? to their proximity to the orb of night, from which only a few hours separated them, to some secret influence of the moon, acting upon their nervous system. Their faces were as rosy as if they had been exposed to the roaring flames of an oven. Their voices resounded in loud accents. Their words escaped like a champagne cork driven out by carbonic acid. Their gestures became annoying. They wanted so much room to perform them, and, strange to say, they none of them noticed this great tension of the mind. "'Now,' said Nicol, in a short tone, "'now that I do not know whether we shall ever return from the moon, I want to know, what are we going to do there?' "'What we are going to do there,' replied Barbicane, stamping with his foot as if he was in a fencing saloon, "'I do not know.' "'You do not know?' exclaimed Michel, with a bellow which provoked a sonorous echo in the projectile. "'No, I have not even thought about it,' retorted Barbicane, in the same loud tone. "'Well, I know,' replied Michel. "'Speak, then,' cried Nicol, who could no longer contain the growling of his voice. "'I shall speak if it suits me,' exclaimed Michel, seizing his companion's arms with violence. "'It must suit you.' said Barbicane, with an eye on fire and a threatening hand. "'It was you who drew us into this frightful journey, and we want to know what for.' "'Yes,' said the captain, "'now that I do not know where I am going, I want to know why I am going.' "'Why?' exclaimed Michel, jumping a yard high. "'Why? To take possession of the moon in the name of the United States, to add a fortieth state to the Union.' to colonize the lunar regions, 
to cultivate them, to people them, to transport thither all the prodigies of art, of science, and industry, to civilize the Selenites, unless they are more civilized than we are, and to constitute them a republic if they are not already one. And if there are no Selenites, retorted Nicol, who, under the influence of this unaccountable intoxication, was very contradictory. Who said there were no Selenites? exclaimed Michel in a threatening tone. I do, howled Nicol. Captain, said Michel, do not repeat that insolence, or I will knock your teeth down your throat. The two adversaries were going to fall upon each other and the incoherent discussion threatened to merge into a fight, when Barbicane intervened with one bound. "'Stop, miserable men,' said he, separating his two companions. "'If there are no Selenites, we will do without them.' "'Yes,' exclaimed Michel, who was not particular. "'Yes, we will do without them. We have only to make Selenites. Down with the Selenites!' "'The Empire of the Moon belongs to us,' said Nicol. Let us three constitute the Republic. I will be the Congress, cried Michel. And I the Senate, retorted Nicol. And Barbicane the President, howled Michel. Not a president elected by the nation, replied Barbicane. Very well, a president elected by the Congress, cried Michel. And as I am the Congress, you are unanimously elected. "'Hurrah! Hurrah! Hurrah! For President Barbicane!' exclaimed Nicol. "'Hip! Hip! Hip!' vociferated Michel Ardin. Then the President and the Senate struck up in a tremendous voice the popular song Yankee Doodle, whilst from the Congress resounded the masculine tones of the Marseillaise. Then they struck up a frantic dance with maniacal gestures, idiotic stampings, and somersaults like those of the boneless clowns in the circus. Diana, joining in the dance and howling in her turn, jumped to the top of the projectile. An unaccountable flapping of wings was then heard amidst most fantastic cockcrows, while five or six hens fluttered like bats against the walls. Then the three travelling companions, acted upon by some unaccountable influence above that of intoxication, inflamed by the air which had set their respiratory apparatus on fire, fell motionless to the bottom of the projectile. End of chapter Chapter 8 of Round the Moon This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. Round the Moon by Jules Verne Chapter 8 At 78,514 Leagues What had happened? Whence the cause of this singular intoxication, the consequences of which might have been very disastrous? A simple blunder of Michel's, which, fortunately, Nicol was able to correct in time. After a perfect swoon, which lasted some minutes, the captain, recovering first, soon collected his scattered senses. Although he had breakfasted only two hours before, he felt a gnawing hunger, as if he had not eaten anything for several days. 
Everything about him, stomach and brain, were over-excited to the highest degree. He got up and demanded from Michel a supplementary repast. Michel, utterly done up, did not answer. Nicholl then tried to prepare some tea, destined to help the absorption of a dozen sandwiches. He first tried to get some fire, and struck a match sharply. What was his surprise to see the sulphur shine with so extraordinary a brilliancy as to be almost unbearable to the eye? From the gas-burner which he lit rose a flame equal to a jet of electric light. A revelation dawned on Nicholl's mind. That intensity of light, the physiological troubles which had arisen in him, the over-excitement of all his moral and quarrelsome faculties, he understood all. "'The oxygen!' he exclaimed. And leaning over the air apparatus, he saw that the tap was allowing the scentless, colourless gas to escape freely, life-giving, but in its pure state, producing the gravest disorders in the system. Michel had blunderingly opened the tap of the apparatus to the full. Nicholl hastened to stop the escape of oxygen with which the atmosphere was saturated, which would have been the death of the travellers, not by suffocation, but by combustion. An hour later, the air less charged with it restored the lungs to their normal condition. By degrees the three friends recovered from their intoxication, but they were obliged to sleep themselves sober over their oxygen as a drunkard does over his wine. When Michel learned his share of the responsibility of this incident, he was not much disconcerted. This unexpected drunkenness broke the monotony of the journey. Many foolish things have been said while under its influence, but all so quickly forgotten. "'And then,' added the merry Frenchman, "'I am not sorry to have tasted a little of this heady gas. Do you know, my friends, that a curious establishment might be founded with rooms of oxygen, where people whose system is weakened could for a few hours live a more active life? Fancy parties where the room was saturated with this heroic fluid—' Theatres where it should be kept at high pressure. What passion in the souls of the actors and spectators! What fire! What enthusiasm! And if, instead of an assembly, only a whole people could be saturated, what activity in its functions! What a supplement to life it would derive! From an exhausted nation they might make a great and strong one, and I know more than one state in old Europe— which ought to put itself under the regime of oxygen for the sake of its health. Michel spoke with so much animation that one might have fancied that the tap was still too open, but a few words from Barbicane soon scattered his enthusiasm. "'That is all very well, friend Michel,' said he. "'But will you inform us where these chickens came from, which have mixed themselves up in our concert?' "'Those chickens?' Yes. Indeed, half a dozen chickens and a fine cock were walking about, flapping their wings and chattering. Ah, the awkward things! exclaimed Michel. The oxygen has made them revolt. But what do you want to do with these chickens? asked Barbicane. To acclimatize them in the moon, by Jove. Then why did you hide them? A joke, my worthy president. A simple joke, which has proved a miserable failure. 
I wanted to set them free on the lunar continent without saying anything. Oh, what would have been your amazement on seeing these earthly-winged animals pecking in the lunar fields? You rascal! You unmitigated rascal! replied Barbicane. You do not want oxygen to mount to the head. You were always what we were under the influence of the gas. You were always foolish. Ah, who says that we were not wise then? replied Michel Ardin. After this philosophical reflection, the three friends set about restoring the order of the projectile. Chickens and cock were reinstated in their coop. But whilst proceeding with this operation, Barbicane and his two companions had a most desired perception of a new phenomenon. From the moment of leaving the earth, their own weight, that of the projectile, and the objects it enclosed, had been subject to an increasing diminution. If they could not prove this loss of the projectile, a moment would arrive when it would be sensibly felt upon themselves and the utensils and instruments they used. It is needless to say that a scale would not show this loss, for the weight destined to weigh the object would have lost exactly as much as the object itself. But a spring steel-yard, for example, the tension of which was independent of the attraction, would have given a just estimate of this loss. We know that the attraction, otherwise called the weight, is in proportion to the densities of bodies, and inversely as the squares of the distances. Hence this effect. If the earth had been alone in space, if the other celestial bodies had been suddenly annihilated, the projectile, according to Newton's laws, would weigh less as it got further from the earth, but without ever losing its weight entirely, for the terrestrial attraction would always have made itself felt at whatever distance. But in reality, a time must come when the projectile would no longer be subject to the law of weight, after allowing for the other celestial bodies whose effects could not be set down as zero. Indeed, the projectile's course was being traced between the earth and the moon. As it distanced the earth, the terrestrial attraction diminished, but the lunar attraction rose in proportion. There must then come a point where these two attractions would neutralize each other. The projectile would possess weight no longer. If the moon's and the earth's densities had been equal, this point would have been at an equal distance between the two orbs. But taking the different densities into consideration, it was easy to reckon that this point would be situated at forty-seven sixtieths of the whole journey, that is, at seventy-eight thousand five hundred fourteen leagues from the earth. At this point, a body having no principle of speed or displacement in itself would remain immovable forever, being attracted equally by both orbs, and not being drawn more towards one than towards the other. Now, if the projectile's impulsive force had been correctly calculated, it would attain this point without speed, having lost all trace of weight, as well as all the objects within it. What would happen then? Three hypotheses presented themselves. 1. Either it would retain a certain amount of motion and pass the point of equal attraction, and fall upon the moon by virtue of the excess of the lunar attraction over the terrestrial. 2. 
or, its speed failing and unable to reach the point of equal attraction, it would fall back upon the earth by virtue of the excess of the terrestrial attraction over the lunar. 3. Or lastly, animated with sufficient speed to enable it to reach the neutral point, but not sufficient to pass it, it would remain forever suspended in that spot like the pretended tomb of Mahomet, between the zenith and the nadir. Such was their situation, and Barbicane clearly explained the consequences to his travelling companions, which greatly interested them. But how should they know when the projectile had reached this neutral point, situated at that distance, especially when neither themselves nor the objects enclosed in the projectile would be any longer subject to the laws of weight? Up to this time the travellers, whilst admitting that this action was constantly decreasing, had not yet become sensible to its total absence. But that day, about eleven o'clock in the morning, Nicol having accidentally let a glass slip from his hand, the glass, instead of falling, remained suspended in the air. "'Ah!' exclaimed Michel Ardin. "'That is rather an amusing piece of natural philosophy.' and immediately divers other objects, firearms and bottles, abandoned to themselves, held themselves up as by enchantment. Diana, too, placed in space by Michel, reproduced, but without any trick, the wonderful suspension practiced by Caston and Robert Houdin. Indeed, the dog did not seem to know that she was floating in air. The three adventurous companions were surprised and stupefied despite their scientific reasonings, they felt themselves being carried into the domain of wonders. They felt that weight was really wanting to their bodies. If they stretched out their arms, they did not attempt to fall. Their heads shook on their shoulders. Their feet no longer clung to the floor of the projectile. They were like drunken men having no stability in themselves. Fancy had depicted men without reflection— others without shadow. But here reality, by the neutralization of attractive forces, produced men in whom nothing had any weight, and who weighed nothing themselves. Suddenly Michel, taking a spring, left the floor and remained suspended in the air, like Murillo's monk of the Cousine des Anges. The two friends joined him instantly, and all three formed a miraculous ascension in the centre of the projectile. "'Is it to be believed? Is it probable? Is it possible?' exclaimed Michel. "'And yet it is so. Ah, if Raphael had seen us thus, what an assumption he would have thrown upon canvas!' "'The assumption cannot last,' replied Barbicane. "'If the projectile passes the neutral point, the lunar attraction will draw us to the moon.' "'Then our feet will be upon the roof.' replied Michel. "'No,' said Barbicane, "'because the projectile centre of gravity is very low. It will only turn by degrees. "'Then all our portables will be upset from top to bottom. That is a fact.' "'Calm yourself, Michel,' replied Nicol. "'No upset is to be feared. Not a thing will move, for the projectile's evolution will be imperceptible.' "'Just so.' continued Barbicane, and when it is past the point of equal attraction, 
its base, being the heavier, will draw it perpendicularly to the moon. But, in order that this phenomenon should take place, we must have passed the neutral line. "'Pass the neutral line!' cried Michel. "'Then let us do as the sailors do when they cross the equator!' A slight slide movement brought Michel back towards the padded side. Thence he took a bottle and glasses, placed them in space before his companions, and, drinking merrily, they saluted the line with a triple hurrah. The influence of these attractions scarcely lasted an hour. The travellers felt themselves insensibly drawn towards the floor, and Barbicane fancied that the conical end of the projectile was varying a little from its normal direction towards the moon. By an inverse motion the base was approaching first. The lunar attraction was prevailing over the terrestrial. The fall towards the moon was beginning, almost imperceptibly as yet, but by degrees the attractive force would become stronger, the fall would be more decided, the projectile, drawn by its base, would turn its cone to the earth, and fall with ever-increasing speed on to the surface of the selenite continent. Their destination would then be attained. Now nothing could prevent the success of their enterprise, and Nicol and Michel Ardin shared Barbicane's joy. Then they chatted of all the phenomena which had astonished them one after the other, particularly the neutralization of the laws of weight. Michel Ardin, always enthusiastic, drew conclusions which were purely fanciful. "'Ah, my worthy friends!' he exclaimed. "'What progress we should make if on earth we could throw off some of that weight, some of that chain which binds us to her! It would be the prisoner set at liberty. No more fatigue of either arms or legs. Or, if it is true that in order to fly on the earth's surface, to keep oneself suspended in the air merely by the play of the muscles, there requires a strength of one hundred and fifty times greater than that which we possess. A simple act of volition, a caprice, would bear us into space, if attraction did not exist. "'Just so,' said Nicol, smiling. "'If we could succeed in suppressing weight as they suppress pain by anaesthesia, that would change the face of modern society.' "'Yes,' cried Michel, full of his subject. "'Destroy weight, and no more burdens!' "'Well said,' replied Barbicane. "'But if nothing had any weight, nothing would keep in its place. Not even your hat on your head, worthy Michel. Nor your house, whose stones only adhere by weight. Not a boat, whose stability on the water is caused only by weight.' not even the ocean, whose waves would no longer be equalized by terrestrial attraction, and lastly, not even the atmosphere, whose atoms, being no longer held in their places, would disperse into space. "'That is tiresome,' retorted Michel. "'Nothing like these matter-of-fact people for bringing one back to the bare reality.' "'But console yourself, Michel.' continued Barbicane. For if no orb exists from whence all laws of weight are banished, you are at least going to visit one where it is much less than on the earth. The moon? Yes, the moon, on whose surface objects weigh six times less than on the earth, a phenomenon easy to prove. And we shall feel it? 
asked Michelle. Evidently, as two hundred pounds will only weigh thirty pounds on the surface of the moon. And our muscular strength will not diminish? Not at all. Instead of jumping one yard high, you will rise eighteen feet high. But we shall be regular Hercules in the moon, exclaimed Michel. Yes, replied Nicholl, for if the height of the Selenites is in proportion to the density of their globe, they will be scarcely a foot high. Lilliputians, ejaculated Michel, I shall play the part of Gulliver. We are going to realize the fable of the giants. This is the advantage of leaving one's own planet and overrunning the solar world. One moment, Michel, answered Barbicane. If you wish to play the part of Gulliver, only visit the inferior planets, such as Mercury, Venus, or Mars, whose density is a little less than that of the Earth. But do not venture into the great planets, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, Neptune, for there the order will be changed, and you will become Lilliputian. And in the sun? In the sun, if its density is thirteen hundred and twenty-four thousand times greater, and the attraction is twenty-seven times greater than on the surface of our globe, keeping everything in proportion, the inhabitants ought to be at least two hundred feet high. "'By Jove!' exclaimed Michel. "'I shall be nothing more than a pygmy, a shrimp!' "'Gulliver with the giants,' said Nicholl. "'Just so,' replied Barbicane. "'And it would not be quite useless to carry some pieces of artillery to defend oneself.' "'Good,' replied Nicholl. "'Your projectiles would have no effect on the sun. They would fall back on the earth after some minutes.' "'That is a strong remark.' "'It is certain.' replied Barbicane. The attraction is so great on this enormous orb that an object weighing seventy thousand pounds on the sun would weigh but nineteen hundred twenty pounds on the surface of the earth. If you were to fall upon it, you would weigh, uh, let me see, about five thousand pounds, a weight which you would never be able to raise again. The devil, said Michel, one would want a portable crane. However, we will be satisfied with the moon for the present. There, at least, we shall cut a great figure. We will see about the sun by and by. End of chapter Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.